All right, hello everybody. Welcome to uh, another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. This is Jackson Hankey once again. Um, Joshua is not here today. Uh, he and his wife are at an FCA camp in the Twin Cities, so I'm going to be doing this one um, on my on my own. Uh, so if it's a bit clumsy, if it's a little bit awkward at times, forgive me. Um, it's a lot harder to do, you know, a, a monologue as opposed to doing, you know, having a conversation and, and talking about theological things. Um, so do forgive me if I if I stumble a bit or or if at times it seems a bit awkward. Um, so in our series that we've just talked about, we talked about the Word of God. Um, we talked about the forms of the Word of God. We talked about how the Bible is the ultimate authority for all people and for the Christian. And, and we have not been shy about the fact that the place we're operating from, the framework for for our beliefs is, is the Christian theistic worldview. The Christian theistic worldview is is what is is the foundation of of the way we interpret the world, of the way we, we, we do ethics, of the way uh, that the Christian looks at church church structure, and that comes from what God has revealed. What God has revealed in creation, and specifically what God has revealed in his word. That is the foundation for what we believe. And there are a lot of worldviews out there that, that cast aside that foundation, that want to do away with it. And, and today... Um, this is a bit of a, a diversion from um, our series. Uh, I don't know if we were really planning on on, on doing a, a podcast this week with Joshua gone, uh, but I thought this would be something that would be be really good to talk about. Um, it's been really helpful for me. The more I study it, the more I look at it. But, to, but today I want to take a look at, um, w- we've talked before in our last episode about the Christian worldview. We talked about the Bible as the foundation of, of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And now we want to look at a worldview that is very predominant in our day that does away with that. And the one that I'm specifically talking about, I'm just going to refer to it as as the atheistic worldview. And really, um, it's going to be the the Darwinistic, materialistic, um, the, the Darwinistic, materialistic, naturalistic worldview. Right, we're going to talk a bit about that, but I think again, it's important to to understand that the worldview we have affects the the claims that we can make or the things that we believe. Um, in order for me to make a claim about morality, in order for me to make a claim about um, government, society, politics, anything, what I need to have is I have a worldview that forms the foundation of what I believe really the question can be to anybody, anybody that makes a claim, um, an objective claim about about people that is meant to, to have a hold on people. Like if I make the claim for, per se that it is absolutely true that every human should love their neighbor and not eat them or not kill them. It is absolutely true, objectively true, that every neighbor, every human being should not kill their neighbor and, and should not eat them. That is a moral imperative. I make that claim and I stand on the foundation of the Christian worldview, which says <clears throat> that every human being is made in the image and the likeness of God and has infinite dignity, worth, and value because they come and, and are derived from an infinite God. And God has said himself, again, that is, the, that is the authority that the Christian worldview stands on. God has said that every person has infinite dignity, worth, and value, and that every person is made in his image. And and that's final. In the Christian worldview, when I make that claim, I stand on the foundation of the Christian worldview and on God's revelation as the ultimate authority. 
And for, for, for someone operating in the atheistic, Darwinistic worldview, for them to make that similar claim, they also have to have a foundation for it. Why? Simply the question is, why? I mean, someone, someone can make that claim and I can, and I can answer why. I can say, says who? Who says? Why should I listen to that? And from the Christian worldview, I said, God says he's the ultimate authority. Um, he is the one who, who decides morality. He is the one. Th- that is where it's all derived from. Everything is derived from his character. But when, 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 the, when someone operating from the atheistic worldview makes that claim, the question that I would ask them is why? A- and I would ask them that they cannot borrow from the Christian worldview to make their point. They cannot take things from the Christian worldview to, to, to take their point, to make their point. They have to operate consistently from within their own worldview. So they have to find an answer for why human beings have dignity, worth, and value, and an answer for why we shouldn't kill them and eat them. And we're going to explore a little bit of that today. Um, that's just kind of a, a bit of an introdu- introduction to the topic. That worldview is extremely prevalent in our day, and, and, and everybody makes those claims about objective things. And many people that operate within that worldview make those claims about objective things. And we're going to look at the question of, is that justifiable? Can the atheist from the Darwinian atheistic worldview make that claim? That's, that's kind of the question we want to talk about. So first, I'm just going to talk about the, the Darwinistic worldview in general. Um, I don't think I probably need to give much of an introduction to Darwinism uh, or to the person of, of Charles Darwin or to the theory of, of macroevolution that, that, that um, ultimately came from Darwin. So like I said, I mean, I mean this is taught uh, to everybody these days. Um, the Darwinism is, is basically the idea, or, or the Darwinistic worldview operates on the idea of, of the origin of species, of um, how humans came about, how, how animals came about, how all things come about, um, was by natural selection acting on random genetic mutations, um, and, and all life forms trace back to a single cell or a single bacteria etc um time and chance was acting on matter natural selection occurred um genetic mutations happened and genetic mutations that happened that were were positive and allowed for survival um reproduced etc i think i think everybody kind of knows the theory so what's important to understand (coughs) is that in that worldview the the origin of species as darwin's darwin's book is is famously titled the or, the origin of species comes about from an unguided unpurposed unmeaningful random process the, the ultimate thing that's going on is is simply this time and chance acting on matter Right, and and when I look at the human person, um, from the Darwinistic worldview, what I get, um, okay, this this is a Homo sapien, um, and this is not someone made in the image of God. This is someone who is the random result of evolutionary processes. The Darwinistic worldview has at its core that everything is immaterial, and that and that everything is is or I, s- I take that back actually that everything is material. And everything that is n- everything is naturalistic. There is no existence of immaterial things. That's what the Darwinistic atheistic worldview has 
at its core and the ultimate driving force of all things is random time and chance it, it's essentially chaos it's matter in motion that that is that is that is what's going on that is what we see around us that is the cause and explanation for all things um an unguided unpurposed process that never had human beings in mind there's nothing there's nothing personal about it and so now what i want to do is is to make an analysis of this of this worldview and the first thing to do, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this or not, um, but is to take, take a look at, at the science that is behind Darwin's theory of macroevolution. And, and I want to take a, a bit of a look at it. And, and there are some, there are some different schools of thought in, in Christian apologetics, which, which, which apologetics is a big word. It just means defending the Christian faith. Um, there are a few approaches. There's the evidentialist approach, um, which essentially says. It, it essentially says that we want to find some sort of neutral ground, present the evidence, see where it leads, right? Uh, we want to make Christianity seem to be the most probable, the most probable, the most likely worldview. And I think that does have some problems. Um, the other the other method is the presuppositionalist approach, which which operates, it, it doesn't seek neutrality, it operates from the presupposition that, that the Bible is the revealed word of God and the ultimate authority, and, and, it, and it really doesn't seek to find neutrality, but takes a look at other worldviews and, and points out the inconsistencies of them. Um, and, and I think the presuppositional approach is the right one. Um, it, it is the best one. I, th- I think both have merit. Um, a lot of my testimony comes from, you know, evidentialist apologetics, reading and studying, um, you know, what is, what is the historicity of the Christian faith? Is this something that can be proved historically? Um, what is, what, what is, science have to say about christianity um answering those sort of questions looking at the evidence i do encourage people to do that and and i'm going to do both in this podcast a bit today um but but as we the the presuppositionalist approach realizes that there's a bigger problem especially with the darwinian worldview the presuppositionalist approach realizes uh, and, and it it probes deeper into the question of of how do we know what we know and what, what are the presuppositions that, that the Darwinian atheist, um, someone operating in that worldview, what are the presuppositions that they're holding and can they justify holding those beliefs? So we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, I do think that that second one, the, the, the presuppositional approach is the better approach. Um, but I do want to talk about um, the empirical evidence, the scientific evidence of Darwin's theory of macroevolution. So I- if you know, and, and I'm sure many people know this story, um, but Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands and he observed something. Um, he observed different, uh, well, the same species of finches that had some different qualities. Um, what he observed is commonly referred to as microevolution. It was very small changes that happened within the same species and that, that made it easier for those species to survive in their environment, right? And, and he took from that and he postulated a theory about macroevolution which is a different thing than microevolution macroevolution is the idea that 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 same process um the same um small differences um is actually he he went back and said that 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 process is responsible for the creation um of all species he said that all species came from the same organism and that over a great 
great period of time, that organism somehow had genetic, random genetic mutations, and that natural selection was acting on those random mutations, and the, the random mutations that were fit for survival survived and reproduced, and the ones that were not did not. That's essentially the idea, and the idea is that that is what led to and produced all different types of species. So, so what's important to understand in this, first of all, though this is presented as though it were a scientific fact today, there is, there is nothing factual about it. Um, it, it, it. From the start, has always been a theory based on the observation of microevolution. And Darwin, and, and what people do today is they, they take that theory, or they, they take what they observe in microevolution, which is a completely different thing, and they apply that on a macro scale, which is, is, is actually really unwarranted. <clears throat> and one of the biggest problems in Darwin's day that has only gotten actually worse since he started his theory um, is, is the issue of the fossil record. What, what Darwin, what we see in the fossil record is not what we would expect from Darwin's theory. And Darwin himself knew this. But Darwin believed that as, as we discovered more about the fossil record and as we look at more of these things in time past, we would discover the transitory species um, that are required for his system to work. We would find transition animals. You would find something that is some sort of half-breed between a fish and a bird um, or a bird and a, and a person uh, or a mammal, etc. And that's not what we have. The fossil record since Darwin's time has actually only continued to show the opposite. Um, what it does show is a major, massive, uh, diverse amount of species and different forms of creatures that, that, that appear at once. It does not show what Darwin's theory would require slow, small changes over time and animals transitioning to other types of animals and species. That problem has only got worse, and we have made some serious advances in, in archaeology and in fossil studies, and that problem has only got worse. The fossil record continues to show fully developed species um, and, and tremendous amount of diversity and no period leading up before that. We just do not see that. <coughs> and that that does not comply or, or comport with the assertion of Darwinists uh, on the, on this theory of, of natural selection acting on random genetic mutations producing slowly, slowly, slowly different small differences and, and ultimately all the diversity we see now. And the greater problem from that, um, an, an, another problem is just the complexity of life that exists on Earth. On Earth. For example, the human being, the, the body of the human being is far more complex than Darwin would have realized in his day. What Darwin believed about the human cell is that it essentially was <clears throat> was a blob that, that that had very little in it, and now we're able to look at the human cell and we are able to see the complexity of it. And further than that, I mean, I mean, we look at the human body; it's more more complex than anything um, that even the most intelligent human design could ever make. And the th the thing about Darwin's theory is that it removes. And it, it, it takes away any idea of intelligent design or any order behind or purpose behind the creation of species or of the universe. So in Darwin's theory, there is no intelligent designer. There is nothing but time and matter or time and chance acting on matter. There is no guiding process. There is no intelligent design. There is just some sort of weird mixture of matter and motion running into each other, creating things. And it's essentially as if 
basically the idea can be um, really similar to this. It's as if a tornado ripped through a town and a house was built from it. Um, instead of a house being tore down, it's as if a bunch of the materials to make a house were wrapped up in a tornado, and, and when it came out, it was put together perfectly, as as if it were intelligently designed. And, and when we talk about the human anatomy, when we talk about the, the complexity of the human person, it is far more complex than any house, and it is far more complex than any human has ever been able to design something. For example, human DNA is actually very much like computer code. Computer code is designed by humans to, to, to achieve certain results when you plug something into it. And, and in the same way, DNA acts like that with proteins. And it forms protein sequences um, that, that, that create, essentially make up what our bodies are. And, and the, it's, it's important to realize, like, the DNA of an average person... This is how complex the human body is. The DNA of an average person, if you took it, of an average size person, if you took it and you stretched it out, all of it out, it would stretch to the sun and back 70 times. To the sun and back 70 times. That is how much DNA exists within a human person and that is how complex the human body is. Um, and for all that humans believe in how smart we are and how many things, we have never been able to replicate something as complex as DNA, as human DNA, or other systems within the human body. And what we know about, about things that exhibit order, um, what we know about computer code, what we know about other things is they, they do not come about from random processes. They do not come about by the jumbling of things randomly together. But things with purpose, um, things with massive complexity come about by intelligent design. They, they are intelligently designed. If you think about your computer, if you think about your car, all the parts of it were put together by someone intelligent and each part has a specific function um, within the whole thing that makes the rest of the whole thing function. You, you would never look at a car in nature or, or look at a computer in nature and assume that it came about randomly. And the human body is much more complex than that. You cannot, you cannot do that. that. That is essentially the first problem. Um, the fossil record, the complexity, those are major, major issues for, for the Darwinists. And the second problem is, I hinted at this a little bit, um, but the idea of, of irreducible complexity, that, that's kind of a big word, but, but in, in, in many life forms in the human body and many species, there, there's what is called irreducible complexity. And this, this cannot coincide or, or coincide with Darwin's theory of evolution and, and the idea of irreducible complexity and if you're looking for more um, research on this kind of thing Stephen Meyer uh, is a really good one he's a he's a he's a biologist who, who operates from who does science operates from the Christian worldview um, and he does science on, on the presupposition that there is order that there is intelligent design in the world and that's why we can do science um, but he talks a lot about irreducible complexity and remember, Darwin's theory asserts that there are small mutations created, and if they were functional, and if they were able to survive, then step by step would be added more and more mutations, and, and it would create more and more elaborate things. But there's a problem with that theory. The systems that we observe in, in, in human life and in other animals, the systems that, that happen in the human cell, um, in human organs, are irreducibly complex. And what that means is that the parts of the system are not functional on their own a and maybe this is the example i thought of um 
I have a, I have an AR-15 uh, in my house. And if anybody knows guns well, you, you can take apart an AR-15 and they all look the same. And an AR-15 is made up of many parts. It's got a, you know, it's got a stock, it's got a barrel, it's got the trigger, it has a firing pin, it has a magazine. It's, it's, it's made up of many, many parts. And what's interesting, um, the function the function of an AR-15 is, is to shoot um, projectile bullets. And the interesting part is if you if you remove one part of the AR-15, the rest of it does not have a function. It is non-functional. If I take the firing pin out of my AR-15, then it will not do any of the function that, that it's meant to do. And the same thing in the human cell. There is There is a system that is irreducibly complex. So you cannot take one part out and then the rest of it functions. <clears throat> you need every part in the whole system to function properly. So the, the, the implication behind that is that you can't arrive at a system that is irreducibly complex if you start from something that is reducible and simple. If it has, if it has a single part or if it functions as a whole, you, you cannot go from that and evolve to an irreducibly complex system where all the parts are needed to perform the one function of the system. And Darwin himself knew this. Darwin, in, in, in his book, Origin of Species, says this, <clears throat> and, and this is a quote from his, from his Origin of Species. He says, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down but I can find no such case. And what's interesting is that from the time of Darwin, we have found exactly that. The human body operates in that way. Uh, many of the things we see around us are irreducibly complex systems, and the human, and the human body is, is perhaps the most. Even the, the human cell, on a cellular level, the human cell is irreducibly complex. You cannot take one part out, and the whole system still functions. But you need each part for the function of the whole. A and as, as Darwin himself said, if, if it could be demonstrated that anything exists which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. But I can find no such case. So the, 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 the idea of irreducible complexity makes the Darwinian theory of evolution essentially obsolete. Natural selection has no power and no ability to take from something simple and make something incredibly complex. All it can do is offer slight modifications that are functional. But that is not what we see around us. That is not what the human body is made of. The human body is made of irreducibly complex systems, and it becomes incredibly clear that, that all of, of life, all of life forms were intelligently designed. You do not you do not have computer code. You don't build houses. You don't do things like that by just putting everything in a blender and then and then it sticks. It must be intelligently designed. It must be put together, and and that is the reason why these things are the reason why Darwinian macroevolution is increasingly an unheld theory and increasingly being unsupported by the scientific community, both Christian and non-Christian, because scientifically it does not stand. It does not have legs to stand on, but it is what it always was. And the reason it's still held is solely because it is the best naturalistic explanation 
to all the species that we see around us. And it is nothing more than a theory that that is the best theory that that they that though the Darwinist believes can remove God from the equation, can remove intelligent design from the equation. And it operates from a naturalistic perspective that seeks to do just that. The presupposition is there is no God. We have to explain this somehow. And this is the best way to do it. And so it's held to and it's taught not because it is scientifically reliable or empirically obvious, but because it is the best naturalistic explanation to try to remove intelligent design from the process and to try to really to remove purpose, to remove guidance, uh, to remove meaning from the creation of human beings and from the creation of all life forms. And so even from the, from the evidentialist perspective, when we look at Darwinism, when we look at the evidence, what we find is that in, in terms of its observable empirical evidence, it is very, very poorly founded. What, what we see around us, what we see in the fossil record, what we see in other things do not support the claims that the Darwinian macroevolutionists make. And beyond that, what, what the theory postulates um, is, is that natural select selection acting on random genetic mutations has the capacity to produce new types of species and, and to produce the complex biological systems that we see today. And when we actually take a look at that and we, we observe that, that theory empirically and evidentially, we find that it is extremely lacking in, the, in, in its capacity to actually do that. Um, and it is unable to produce or to have the capacity to produce the world that we see around us today and, and the biological systems that it does. So with that, that, that would be an example of, like an, uh, of an evidentialist apologetic approach to Darwinism, which I think is important. Um, but, but the presuppositional approach is going to take it a step further and it's going to look at the implications and the understanding uh, of, of what that worldview means. And it's going to operate from this idea. We see it, we've talked about it before, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And, and in chapter two of Colossians, Paul, uh, Paul writes this to the Colossians. He writes to them, he says, I want you to know, this is chapter 2, verse 2. Um, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And then he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with, with plausible arguments. Paul is saying that that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. That there is no knowledge or wisdom that is apart from, from Jesus Christ. The, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You cannot have wisdom apart from, from Jesus Christ. And what the presuppositional apologist is gonna, it does when critiquing this Darwinian worldview is going to look at the claims that the Darwinian worldview makes and it's going to ask the question, do they have a basis to make those claims? Right? Can the atheistic worldview justify its appealing to knowledge completely on its own and apart from Christ? Can they make an appeal? Can, can, really, can they make an appeal for morality, objective morality? Can they make appeals to science? Can they make appeals to logic apart from Christ? 
Can they do that without borrowing from the Christian worldview? And what you see is that, that many people will borrow from the Christian worldview and let that inform their beliefs. The atheist operating from this worldview does not live in the way that his worldview says that he should live. And, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about some of this, we're going to go through it, but that is essentially the question, can the atheist justify from its worldview the the claims that they make about morality? Can, can they justify the claims of knowledge that they that they suppose themselves to have? And what the, the presuppositionalist apologetic uh, apologist is going to say is, no, they can't. Without presupposing the God of the Bible, there is no basis or foundation for human reason. There's no basis for laws of logic. There's no basis for science. And there's no basis for objective morality. All of those things are immaterial things. And, you, and from this worldview, you cannot have immaterial things. All that you have is time and matter time and chance acting on matter all that you have is, is chaos and you cannot derive universal truths or universal immaterial laws from time and chance acting on matter and the consistent the consistent atheist will admit this the consistent atheist knows this richard dawkins is one of the most one of the most famous one of the most widely known atheists today he he goes around doing debates, traveling, doing all these things, arguing against the existence of God, arguing against the the Christian worldview, and and, su- and arguing in support of the Darwinian atheistic worldview. And and here is a quote from Richard Dawkins that well e- explains his own worldview um, and gives us an idea of of what the atheistic worldview leads to. And most people that live in this worldview do not understand its implications. They do not follow all of the logical implications of that worldview. But Richard Dawkins does it does it well. And this is this these are the implications. I'm going to read this. this is a quote from Richard Dawkins. He says this In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That is a quote from from Richard Dawkins. That is the consistent outworking of the Darwinian worldview. No design, no purpose, and listen to this, no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference no evil and no good that is what that is what the atheistic worldview that's the logical implications of it because what you have as the ultimate driving force of of all of the world is is chaos it is time and chance acting on matter that that's all that it is and the the atheists the people that that believe and stand in this worldview they operate from a naturalistic and materialistic perspective there is nothing that is immaterial that exists, there is no immaterial realities. Even the, the human brain is completely physical and there is no immaterial dimension to human consciousness or human thought. There's no immaterial realities. Um, a, a number of, of famous atheists, uh, Stephen Hawking, Thomas Nagel, a philosopher, uh, Sam Harris, another one, they, they talk about this very idea and they address the issue of of whether or not humans have um, some sort of free will 
or if they are totally determined by the chemical reactions that are going on in their brain and all of them all all three of those and many others and the consistent atheist admits from this worldview that free will or, or human agency or any or any choice that humans have to operate is is fictional and what primarily governs all human action is the chemical reactions that go on in the brain and there's nothing the human the, the person does that that affects those one quote from from sam harris who, who is a famous atheist he says i can no more initiate a thought in my prefrontal cortex than i can cause my own heart to beat so so that is the sum of of this atheistic system as as richard dawkins says there's no purpose no evil and no good there's blind pitiless indifference everything is material a- and sam harris says that we are completely governed by what chemical reactions happen in our brain that is the the epitome of it and you have to keep that in mind when 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 someone from this worldview tries to make a proposition or a claim about morality when they try to make a claim uh, about the laws of of logic or or other things um what they have already said is that there is no such thing as good or evil and that we are entirely governed entirely governed governed by the chemical reactions that happen in our brain which we cannot control that is the logical outworking and logical conclusion of the darwinian atheistic worldview and the problem is that when you try when you when you act consistently with that worldview and when you try from the, the basis of that worldview to to address things like morality um you cannot do it because what you have, if, if you remove entirely the Christian worldview, if you're not allowed to borrow from it, if you try to, to, to discuss an issue of morality or, or to put forth objective moral claims, which you cannot do, the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to find a way to, to give every human person infinite dignity, worth, and value. That's what the Christian worldview says. So you have to find some sort of way to, to see humans as valuable and you cannot do it when you remove the christian worldview you remove the image of god you you remove the inherent worth dignity and value and what a human becomes is a random result of evolutionary processes that never had it in mind in the first place and is simply acting on the chemical reactions that happen in its brain it is essentially a a, a molecular machine or just just a, a big clump of biological stuff basically a robot it's chemical reactions happening in a brain and what's ultimate is is chaos and randomness and when i when i when you hear an atheist that's operating from this perspective try to tell another person what they are morally allowed to do or to make a moral claim the simple question is what authority do you have to say that if you're operating from the atheistic worldview what authority do you have as a random result of evolutionary processes that never had you in mind to tell another random result of evolutionary processes that never had it in mind what it is supposed to do. You have no basis to say to that other person or to society in general, you can and cannot do this. You have no basis to make that that claim that we talked about at the, the opening of the episode. From the Christian worldview and from where I sit or where I stand, with the Christian worldview as my foundation, I can objectively say that it is a moral imperative that every human being should love their neighbor and not kill them. 
that is a moral imperative that has as its very foundation the character of God. It has as its very foundation the fact that, that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, and he is the one with authority that says every human is made in the image of likeness of God, and therefore you are to love your neighbor and not kill them. The Christian standing in that worldview can say that. The atheist standing in the, in the, in the Darwinian worldview where the only thing that is ultimate is, is chaos and randomness. All that we have is matter and motion and all that a human is is chemical reactions going on within the brain has no basis to say that another human being should always universally everywhere at all times love their neighbor and not kill them. And we have seen in society, the other argument, another argument that atheists will try to make is that society determines morality. What is seen as as the, the majority opinion in society is what determines morality. But, but the issue with that is that it remains subjective. It, it keeps morality in a subjective place. You, there is still no basis to objectively say to someone that that is always universally a bad thing to do. And, and this has been clear, and we've talked about this before, but in societies in the past, it has been the the societal majority to say that 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 black people were three-fifths of a person. That was a majority opinion in the United States for a long time, and that is that was seen as something not objectively wrong. And there was an, another time in history, just to give a few examples, that 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 in 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 the, during the Holocaust in Germany, Jews were considered vermin. They were considered less than people, and, and society, as a majority, agreed with that and allowed it to allowed it to happen. And from the atheistic worldview, they do not have a basis to objectively say that that is evil all the time, at every place all the time. There is no basis to say that. There is no basis for one bag of biological stuff to say to another bag of biological stuff that they cannot do something. Because the, when asked the question why, simply the, the only thing that the atheist has to refute it is because the chemical reaction in my brain tells me that you can't. And you say that to, to, someone, to someone doing something, you say that to, to the rapist or to someone else doing objective moral evil, and the rapist would right, would rightly respond to them and say, so what? Why does it matter what your chemical reactions in your brain are telling you? My chemical reactions in my brain are telling me something else. Who says that I have to listen to you? Why should I, as a random result of evolutionary process processes, care what you, as a random result of evolutionary processes, say? And further than this, when you make morality subjective... There is no basis to continue it into the future or continue to, to allow it to stay the same in the future. It is not objective. It can change. What, what's moral today may not be moral tomorrow or next week or in a year or in 10 years. Right now, the, the, what, what we agree on and what the law of God clearly says is that it's objectively immoral for an adult person to have sexual relations with a child. And we have a basis from the Christian worldview to say that always and everywhere, at every time and every place, that is objectively evil and wicked and deserves punishment according to God's law. But for the atheist, all that they have is, okay, well, right now society as a whole believes that that's bad. 
but that can change. Morality is a subjective thing that can change. And the point of all of this, the point of all of this is, is when you operate from this worldview, you don't have a basis for morality. You do not have a basis to tell people what they can and cannot do or should or should not do. You cannot have a moral system with any authority without the character of God. Morality is rooted in the character of God. He is the highest authority. And what he has revealed about himself is the highest authority for us. God is the epitome of truth. He is unchanging in his character and his holiness. His holiness is against sin and against what he says is sin. And he will bring justice against it. And that is the basis of morality. All things come from God, have their source in God, and God has, has made humans on the earth and he's given them dominion over the earth and over all the animals. And God, God himself is the one that instituted government for the purpose of carrying out his justice and of carrying out his moral law. So you cannot have objective morality without Jesus Christ. You cannot have it without the character of God as eternal, objectively unchanging, and objectively true, and the definer of what is and what is not moral. You can't have morality without God's character. And that is seen in, in Richard Dawkins' statement and, and in the logical outwork, outworking of, of the atheistic worldview. As he said, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Richard Dawkins, operating from his worldview consistently, says that there is no such thing as evil. So that rape, that, that, that murder, um, that school shooting, is not objectively evil. There is no basis from that worldview to say that that is objectively evil. So to operate consistently within the atheistic worldview, you must throw out morality. And that brings us to another subject. Interestingly enough, the, the atheistic worldview has given rise to the idea that, that somehow science and the, and the Bible are opposed to each other, or somehow, somehow science and Christianity cannot coincide, and, and that, in fact, could not be further from true. What we know about science today and where we have arrived um, with the scientific method came about and really started, um, uh, what, four or five hundred years ago, um, guys like Isaac Newton, uh, Nicholas Copernicus, Blaise Pascal. And what's important to understand is that, <coughs> that these men, who were the pioneers of modern science, they were the pioneers of modern scientific theory, they were Christian theists that operated within a Christian theistic worldview. And the reason that they did science, the reason that they believed that we could know things by empirically observing them is because of their Christian worldview, because they believed in, in God, the Christian God as the creator of all things, who created all things with order and created all things with uniformity, and that those things were unchanging because of God's character. Because of God's character... He is a God of order. He created a world that exhibits order, that exhibits uniformity. And because he is unchanging, the, the, the observable things that we have, the, the immaterial laws of nature are unchanging likewise. <clears throat> and the, the Christian worldview 
I mean, when you read the Bible, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That the thing that is upholding the universe, that the thing that is bringing uniformity to nature is Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul, in verse 15, he says, talking about Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In Christ, all things hold together. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. God has brought order and uniformity to his creation. And from the atheistic worldview, that, that, that gives us, from the Christian worldview, a place to do science. It gives us a foundation to observe what is around us and to know that what is true now will be true in the future. It gives us a basis to, to, to do science knowing that what we observe in the past will continue in the future because God upholds the universe by his power and he created a universe that has order and uniformity. And if you try to find a foundation to do science from the atheistic worldview, all that you have is, again, like I've said this many times, but all that you have is chaos. You have time and chance acting on matter. All that you have is matter in motion. And there is no guarantee that what has happened in the past is going to continue in the future. All of science rests on, on two things. On the principle of induction and on the uniformity principle of nature. And I'm going to explain what those things are. But the principle of induction is, is pretty simple. The idea behind the principle of, of induction is that what happens in the past is going to happen in the future. What I observe yesterday, two days ago, what I observe is going to continue to happen in the future. And therefore, I can act on the basis of the principle of induction and know that when I get out of bed in the morning, I'm not going to float to the sky. And that's an, that's an extreme example. But every person, based on their experience, knows that when they jump in the air or they jump on a trampoline, that they're not going to float away. They know that the law of gravity is constant, that the physical laws that exist in the universe are constant. Um, one, one famous proponent of this argument is Greg Bonson. And a lot of this, a lot of this I'm getting from Greg Bonson. Um, and if you're curious about, about more of this, uh, more of this presuppositional apologetics, I would go listen to Greg Bonson. Um, another person that does it very well today is Jeff Durbin. Uh, he is a, a pastor in, in Arizona, and he has a great ministry, and he interacts with a lot of atheists and the atheistic worldview. Um, and he presses them on, he often, and he, he goes around and he talks to famous atheists, and he presses them on the basis that they have for science, uh, the basis that they have for the principle of induction, for the uniformity principle of nature. And... and what you find is that the, the consistent atheist, the person operating within this worldview, does not have and cannot make use of the principle of induction. They do not have a foundation for believing it. And just to give the history of this, it really starts, da David Hume was a philosopher. He was uh, an 18th century Scottish philosopher. Um, enlightenment period he's, he's famous f you know within the skeptical movement of philosophy and he was an empiricist 
and those two things first skepticism it, it questions what we actually can know how can we know what we know and, and the idea of empiricism is that we can only know based on what we observe we have to observe things to know them and then that's a common thing you you hear today you hear people say okay i have to observe i have to know i, I can't see god i can't touch god i can't taste god uh, this this isn't enough for me i have to observe things but what we have to understand and what David Hume actually argued is is he tried to find a rational basis or foundation from or, or removing the Christian worldview for the principle of induction, for the idea that that what has happened yesterday or or in the past is going to be like the future, right? That, that the uniformity principle of nature exists, that, that, that nature is uniform and unchanging. And, and this is a quote from, from David Hume. This is essentially the question that, that he asks. And this is a quote. What is the nature of that evidence which assures us of any real existence and matter of fact beyond the present testimony of our senses or the records of our, records of our memory? So here's the question. What can we know? What can we know about reality beyond what our senses presently tell us or what they have told us in the past? What can we know about the future? And the question is, can we project what we have experienced in the past into the future? And then what basis do we have to do that? And David Hume is not saying that we don't do this because every person does this every part of their day. Every person lives this way. If you get in your car, um, you assume that it's going to work. You get on an airplane, you assume the laws of gravity, the laws of physics, the airplane is going to fly according to the uniformity principle of nature and according to the laws of physics. Um, it's it's going to operate within that. But Hume is asking the question, what basis do we actually have to believe that? What basis is there for that? And and the o- what, what he's saying is the, the only way we can learn things if the only way we can learn things is by observing past and present, then, then he says that there is no basis to project that into the future. If all we can do is observe, then we have no certainty that the future will be like the past. And this is a serious problem in, in philosophy. And Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell is a famous 20th century atheist, one of the most famous atheists in history. And he writes in the problems, in his book, The Problems of, of Philosophy. And he, first of all, admits that everything we do we need the inductive principle you cannot do science without the inductive principle you cannot do any sort of you cannot have any assurance that the future will be like the past and he says this he says the inductive principle is equally incapable of being proved by an appeal to experience experience might conceivably confirm the inductive principle as regards to the cases that have been already examined but as regards unexamined cases, it is the inductive principle alone that can justify any inference from what has been examined to what has not been examined. All arguments which on the basis of experience argue as to the future or the unexperienced parts of the past or present in assume the inductive principle. So what, what he's saying is that he's saying two things. Every Every person relies on the inductive principle. In order for us to know anything about the future, we must we must have or we must believe the inductive principle that the future will be like the past. And what he's saying is that you cannot derive that from experience. He's agreeing with David Hume that, that you cannot derive it and therefore you have no basis. You have no basis to say that the future will be like the past. 
And when trying to justify that, he further in his book, in his book Problems, he has a book named Problems in Philosophy, and he addresses this question, the problem of induction. And he says, if you try to justify the claim that the future will be like the past, and you say, because it always has been, if you answer that question by saying, because it always has been, Bertrand Russell immediately recognizes that that is a self-refutation. That is a self-refuting argument. You cannot say the future will be like the past because it always has been. And the question, the question that, that is trying to be answered is not what the past was like. The question is, what will the future be like? And with, without the inductive principle, you cannot answer that question. And both Hume and Russell say that we cannot justify believing in the inductive principle. We have no basis to believe that. And both of them are operating from this perspective, from this atheistic perspective. They do not... And, and what's important to realize in this is that all of science depends on the inductive principle. It entirely depends on it. And the point to make with this is that to live and to operate consistently in the atheistic, Darwinistic worldview, you cannot do science. You cannot do science apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot do it. You cannot do it apart from the triune God of the Bible as the creator of all things and as the one who gives all things order and uniformity and whose unchanging character gives us certainty that the past will be like the future, that, that, that Jesus himself upholds the universe by the word of his power, and that the God of order has so ordered the world and intelligently designed it that there is a uniform principle of nature. The laws of nature, which are immaterial, are going to continue to exist. So even science, we've talked about morality and now even science, you cannot do science. You cannot do science from an atheistic perspective. There is no basis for it. You cannot do it. You cannot claim that the future is going to be like the past because what is ultimate in the atheistic worldview is is chaos, it's matter in motion. There is no basis for the atheist to appeal to science. And that is the exact opposite of the argument that we hear. So often you hear of some false dichotomy that exists between science and Christianity. And it is, is in fact, the other way around. The Christian has a basis to do science and its basis is the character of God and that he has created all things and he puts all things with order and uniformity. That Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power and all things are held together in him. That is a basis to do science. That is a basis to do science. And the scientific movement, modern science, is based on that. All the men that were the pioneers of modern science did science because they believed that. They did science based on that foundation. And these of the most famous atheists, Bertrand Russell, admittedly, is saying that they're with that that from that perspective and from that atheistic worldview that there is no basis to believe that the future will be like the past there is no basis to believe in the principle of induction and therefore there is no basis to do science
There is no basis to do science and to think that it has any relevance for the future. And what's remarkable too is that even in the case even in the case of of miracles or supernatural things happening, the Christian has a basis to believe that miracles are are not ordinary. The Christian has the basis to say that God has made things with a certain order. Things happen according to the uniformity principles of nature. Things, if something miraculous happens, it is indeed miraculous. It is a miraculous thing. It is, it is something that happened differently than the way in which God has created the world and ordered it to work. But the atheist, if, if they're, if they're, ultimate authority is random chance and matter in motion and, and random things happening. There's no such thing as immaterial laws. Uh, there's no such thing as the principle of induction. We can't assume that the future will be like the past. In that worldview, anything goes. Anything goes. There, there is no ultimate foundation to say that a miracle is abnormal. It actually fits within their worldview and their, and their frame. The Christian is the one who can say, who can observe a miracle and say, that is miraculous. That is not ordinary. But the atheistic worldview has no basis to make that claim. It is only the Christian worldview. So if we've talked about morality, apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot have morality. You cannot have a moral system that has it in any way objective. It, it must be subjective and therefore can change. And according to Richard Dawkins, there is no such thing even as morality because there is no such thing as good or evil. And now, looking at looking at science and analyzing the claim of whether or not the atheist can appeal to science, they cannot do it. They have no basis. Their own camp, their own their own heroes, their own heroes like David Hume and, and Bertrand Russell, admittedly and willingly say that there is no basis for the principle of induction or or to believe that the future will be like the past and that is something that that science itself is based on you cannot have science without a god of order you cannot do it and that is that is not to say that the atheist who does science cannot arrive at true scientific observations and true scientific conclusions but it is to say that they have no basis for doing it. And every time they do science, they act like a Christian. Every single time they do science, they they take a step into the Christian worldview. And they take on the presupposition that, that there is uniformity of nature and that the future will be like the past, which is are un which are unjustifiable positions from their worldview. So every time the atheist does science or appeals to science, they act like a Christian. And, and everybody knows, everybody knows that this is true. The atheist knows and, and believes in the principle of induction. That is not the question. The question is whether they have a basis to or not. And according to their own, to their own heroes, they do not. It's not, even, it's not just the Christian apologist that says, no, you don't have a basis for that. They say it themselves. And yet nobody lives that way. Nobody lives without the principle of induction. All our lives, we do things assuming and knowing that they're going to happen, that the future is going to be like the past. All of our lives, we do that. Every time someone does that, 
They live like a Christian. They live with the presupposition that there is uniformity in nature, that God has created and sustains all things, that he's a God of order, and he has created a world that has order. But, again, from that perspective, from the logical outworking of the Darwinian atheistic worldview, there is not a basis for that. There is no basis. Morality, science, are out the window. There, there is no appeal to that. And, and even laws of logic. You cannot, once again, you cannot have logic apart from the character of God. Logic itself is rooted in the character of God. The atheistic worldview says this. Again, what Richard Dawkins says, there's no purpose, no design, no evil, no good. Um, Sam Harris, there's, there's nothing immaterial. Nothing immaterial. Matter in motion. What then can we make of laws of logic? Does the atheist have a claim or can the atheist justify making a claim from their worldview, not borrowing from the Christian worldview, for the laws of logic? And what's important to understand here is that the laws of logic have no material value. They are immaterial. They are immaterial laws, and they are universal laws. The laws of logic are immaterial, universal, and unchanging. Those are three things that you cannot have from the atheistic worldview. You cannot have immaterial laws. Remember, everything is material. Every single thing is material. You cannot have something that is universal or objective at all times. And you cannot have something that is unchanging because the driver of, of, of the universe, um, again, there's no purpose. All you have is matter and motion, randomness, chaos. That's all it is. So when I engage in the laws of logic and I look at that from, from the perspective of the atheist, all I have that's going on are chemical reactions in my brain. <coughs> chemical reactions are, are happening in my brain and as a result, I'm making logical conclusions. But the atheist, what the atheist is saying is that all that those are are chemical reactions. They're chemical reactions. And you cannot get any universal laws from something that is only material and is only a chemical reaction. How was anybody required to obey the laws of logic if they are nothing but chemical reactions going on in the brain? It is obvious that the laws of, lo the laws of logic are not material. They are immaterial and universal. You, you cannot touch or hold or look at or see a law of logic. You cannot go into somebody's brain and cut out a law of logic. It is an immaterial thing. And the atheistic worldview says explicitly that there can be nothing immaterial. There are only material things that exist. And you cannot have logic. Logic by nature is immaterial, objective, and universal. Nobody, nobody lives believing that there's no such thing as logic. Nobody lives believing that you can have contradictions that are true. Nobody lives believing that. But every time, every time that people engage in the laws of logic, they act like a Christian. They act like Christians. They act from the, from the presupposition 
and you can only derive you can only arrive at this from presupposing a logical god and every time that you act like logic matters you act like a christian no matter what so the atheist every time they engage in logic they act like a christian they are acting inconsistently with their worldview and they have no basis to use the laws of logic laws of logic are immaterial universal and unchanging there is no basis for the atheist from the perspective of their worldview to appeal to them they simply cannot do it so to act to live in this atheistic worldview and nobody does this but but the consistent atheists richard dawkins sam harris they all admit it bertrand russell they all admit this to live as a consistent atheist is to throw away morality it is to throw away the foundation of science which is the principle of induction and the uniformity of nature it is to throw away logic and to throw away all things that are immaterial even think about math think about mathematics and tell me what is material about the laws of mathematics if I put the number two up on a whiteboard and I erase it, I erase the physical rep- representation of the number two, have I destroyed the number two itself? Can you get rid of the number two by erasing it from a whiteboard? No, it is an immaterial, unchanging, universal reality. You cannot do mathematics. You cannot, ha- you cannot engage in logic. You cannot do science. You cannot have a system of morality from the darwinian atheistic worldview it is inconsistent and it is unjustifiable all that you have is matter in motion chaos randomness you have no certainty that the future will be like the past and you have no basis to tell anybody else what they can and cannot objectively do Every time that an atheist operating in this worldview looks at a newspaper and sees something bad happen and they cry out for justice, they're doing it because they're made in the image of God and God is a God of justice. We reflect God's character every time that we cry out for justice or feel a desire for justice. And every time that we act like love is an emotion that we feel that is immaterial and not the response of some chemical reaction going on in our brain that is strictly material, but every time that we feel love for someone and act on it, that is acting like a Christian. And that comes from the character of God. Because we are made in the image and the likeness of God, you cannot have justice, you cannot have love, you cannot have any of the other things that come from the attributes of God. All that you have, like Richard Dawkins says, there's no justice. All that you have is blind, pitiless indifference. That is the Darwinian atheistic worldview. It does not hold up empirically, and it does not hold up on its presuppositions. Nobody lives the way that that worldview says they should live. So I think that's going to be about about it for the episode. Um, Thank you guys for listening. We're going to continue our our series um, discussing God's word. Um, This was a slight detour to talk about another worldview, to talk about the implications of removing God's word as the ultimate authority, to removing God as the ultimate authority. Um, And what I wanted to show from this is that without God, 
without God's character, you cannot have a basis for those things we've talked about. Morality, science, logic, mathematics. Now, there are other worldviews in existence that make that that, ha- that make metaphysical claim um, about a about a creator God, etc. Those are different worldviews. Um, those those have more of a basis to do that. They have their own inconsistencies. Today, what I wanted to specifically talk about was the Darwinian atheistic worldview, um, and I think we've done that. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, that is going to be that's going to be the end of this podcast. Um, uh, looking forward to continuing our series on the on the Word of God. Uh, hopefully, coming out with another episode next week. Thanks, guys.